And so the first word and the last word that Peter ever heard Jesus say was, follow me. Bonhoeffer says it's the first and last call to every disciple. You never get past the call to follow me. After Peter um, heard these words from Jesus, sometime after he heard these words, it was believed that by the time the Gospel of John was written, he'd already died, executed for his faith. John can look back in hindsight and tell us how the end went. But after that, Peter wrote a letter to, uh, after this incident, he wrote a letter to Christians that were scattered all over the region. And what he said was, God's divine power has given us everything we need for living a godly life. By this same power, he has given us rich and wonderful promises So that through them, that is through the promises, we might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is all around us. What a hypocrite. First time Peter ever met Jesus, he was in a boat. Jesus said to Peter, push off from the shore. I want to teach. Peter pushed off. Jesus stood in the boat and spoke to the people. And then Jesus turned and said to Peter, go out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Peter being a fisherman, Jesus not. Pulled rank and said, we've been fishing all night and have caught nothing. But, because you say so, we'll go do it. And they went out and they threw their nets down. And the moment they did, he felt that familiar drag on the net. And when they pulled it up, the nets were breaking because they were so full of fish. Peter said to Jesus, Go away from me, I'm a sinful man. He's ashamed. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. He feels inadequate, unworthy, like he doesn't belong in the same boat with this man. He doesn't even know it's God yet. He just knows that this is a powerful man, and he knows that he's in over his head, and He just says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And and what that translates is, it's it's the same phrase that Jesus said to the demons when he said, depart from me. This is not Peter turning his head. This is Peter telling Jesus to get out of the boat because of the embarrassment. Sometimes when people commit a sin, uh, they drive people away from them. Have you noticed that? It's the one who uh, is unfaithful in a marriage will often say, you need to get out of the marriage. It's the one uh, who has stolen something from the business who is the most critical of the boss. The person who has committed the crime is often the one who pushes people away. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done something that you were ashamed of? 
made you feel unworthy, like you didn't belong, and the way that you coped with that was to push people away, say, go away from me. The only one who can save you, you want out of the boat. About a year later, Peter was listening to Jesus teach about how he would, uh, uh, who, who he was, and uh, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, that's right, and, and upon that statement, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, then Jesus started to tell Peter and the others that he was going to be crucified And he would be handed over to the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These are the religious leaders of that day. Part of Peter's problem is that he thought he knew these religious leaders. And Jesus is telling him that he will be handed over and persecuted by the ministers of the city. Not by the common people. It's the conservative party, the ones who want reform. The religious leaders are the ones who would do him in. And Peter thought he knew these people. And so he's caught between his loyalty to Jesus and his loyalty to his religion. And so he stands up and he says to Jesus... That'll never happen to you. He rebukes him. And the word that he uses is the same word that Jesus used when he rebuked demons. So you can't picture Peter saying to Jesus, you need to rethink that. (laughs) This is not an intellectual dispute. This isn't a debate, people. This is an argument. They're going at it face to face. And Jesus looked at his disciples, according to Mark, and looking at his disciples, then turning and saying to Peter, you see this going on? He says, get behind me, Satan. Sixty seconds after Peter says something that was his best moment, He puts his foot in his mouth and says something that is his worst moment. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever, like, come to a worship service and you were singing like, you just were, you guys were amazing just a few moments ago, and then you went out to your car and, and you started sputtering to somebody on the bypass? Come on now. The bypass is the wilderness, isn't it? It's where we go to be tempted of the devil. Or you will say things with your mouth that affirm the goodness of God, and then a few moments later you'll undercut somebody. You'll say something sarcastic and mean. James says, how can the same mouth speak blessings and curses? And then Jesus says to Peter, your problem is not what you did, it's who you are. You're flawed. You're inadequate. You're unworthy. What he said literally was, 
you are not minded like God. You are minded like a man. What he says is, you do not have the right mind. On the night that Jesus uh, was betrayed, he was in an upper room serving the meal. And he just bluntly turns and says to his disciples, he said, all of you will be deserters. For the scripture says that they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And he barely gets the word out of his mouth and Peter butts in. Peter says to him, I'll never desert you. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, listen to me. I tell you this day, this is in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14. I tell you this day, listen to the language, this very night you will deny me three times before the cock crows twice. Now you would think, Peter would think, this guy's probably smarter than me. This would be a good chance to learn. But he cannot hear hard things about himself. Has that ever happened to you? Somebody say something hard to you and you kind of go at him. So, so Peter looks right back at Jesus and says a second time, if everybody deserts you, I will never desert you. You know, when they survey people today and ask them, how they are with people skills. Did you know that 100%, 100% of the high school graduates say that they are better than average? People, this is not possible. 60% say that they are in the top 25%. I am not making this up. And 25% say they are in the top 1%. Where do they get this? They're teachers. 94% of all college professors say they do better than average work. <laughs> I see math isn't your strength. When they put physicians in a room and ask them to give them the likelihood that they got the diagnosis right, they put themselves in an 88 percentile. I mean, they said 88% of the time I was right on the diagnosis. These are physicians. And yet when they went out and checked with second and third opinions, they discovered they were right 20% of the time. Some of you with a doctor's appointment tomorrow are nervous, aren't you? What am I? What I'm saying is education does not erase the tendency to overestimate ourselves. It doesn't matter how talented you are, if you're in the top 10%, I bet you think you're in the top 1%. And if you're in the top 1%, you're a legend in your own mind. It is our tendency to do this. That very night, Jesus said, let's go out to the garden to pray. They went out to the garden to pray, and he took Peter, James, and John a little bit further into the interior of the garden 
And when he had them there, he said to them in Mark chapter 14, stay here and pray. And then he withdrew by himself for a little while, and then he went back. And when he went back, he found the disciples sleeping. And according to Mark's gospel, Mark is the only one who tells us this because Mark was a disciple of Peter. Peter never forgot that encounter, and he must have told it to Mark. And Mark said, this is what Jesus said when he came back. He didn't speak to all the disciples. He looked at Peter and said, Peter, you sleep? Peter must have remembered. Yeah, there were two other disciples there that night. But what I remember was he looked directly at me. And about an hour after he said, don't fall asleep, he came back and I was sound asleep. And he looked at me and he said, you sleep? You should pray that you do not enter the hour of temptation. Jesus then withdrew for another hour. He came back and he was still sawing logs. And then he went away for another hour and he came back and he was still asleep. And this time, Judas had arrived. And Judas walked up and kissed Jesus on the cheek. And the moment he did, Mark says they laid hands on Jesus to walk him away. And as they laid hands on Jesus, one of the disciples was there and he pulled out a sword and he whacked the guy right across the head, knocked off his ear. Who did that? The Gospel of John says, Jesus turned and looked at the disciple and said, Peter, put away the sword. They then led Jesus away from the garden, watched the language, and Peter followed at a distance. Only one that's named. And they went into a courtyard and there was a charcoal fire and Peter was warming himself by the fire and a servant girl from the high priest walked up and said, wait a minute. You were with him. He said, I was not. In the moment he said it, the cock crowed, and he completely missed it. Because he was afraid, he got up and he left the courtyard, and he went out to a separate than outer courtyard. And no sooner did he get out there, when he heard another person, the servant girl followed him, and said, wait a minute, no, you were with him. And he said, I was not. And a moment later, a bystander was there and said, you had to be with him because you're a Galilean. And Peter started to curse. And this time he said, in essence, I swear to God, I don't even know that guy. And the moment he said it, he heard the cock crow. And this time he heard it. And the end of Mark 14 simply says, and he went out and he wept. Sometimes I think we look at Peter's life and we try to separate uh, his character from his actions. Uh, we try to say the reason Peter did these things is because he was impetuous. He was just wired for action. He was overactive. And what I'm telling you is this is not true. He was a bad man. See, 
I think we do this because we see ourselves in him. I mean, I just ask you, have you ever overestimated yourself? You say yes. I say, have you ever denied him? Have you ever been in a place where you were supposed to say something and you didn't say it? And you would say, well, yes. Have you ever contradicted yourself you praise 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 but you undercut people well yes and you keep wanting like I do to separate that from who we are our character and say well that's not really who I am that's just what I did and I think we do that with Peter we try to give him a break and we try to say he's not as bad as he's coming across and what I'm telling you is yeah he is These are not just character flaws. This is character. Jesus makes no such distinction. He says to Jesus, he says to Peter, you are wired to think like a human. You are not wired to think like God. This is not what Peter did. It's who he is. You are flawed. There's something wrong with you, boy. Can people change? How much? It's a... It's a theoretical question for a moment. So I want you to take all of your I want you to take all of your study and research and set it aside right now. I just want to ask you um, in theory, not practice. I'm not asking you what usually happens. I'm not asking you what your experience has been. I'm asking you what you believe. Listen to me, people. Can people change? And how much can they change? Can they change from one species into another species? Or is it something like natural selection, where people are just sort of wired to be a certain way, and they can have slight mutations within a certain realm, but they can never really jump species? Do you understand the question? Can a person who is wired one way be rewired. I didn't say all at once. I'm just asking, can it ever happen? Can a person who always acts one way learn to always act another way? That is the question. Can they change natures? The Latin for nature means from the root. It starts in the root. The Greek for nature means from the birth out of the womb. So when you think about certain species that are like born to fly, not pigs, birds, you might still have to teach the species to fly. Doesn't mean it all just happens 
But while you're teaching them to fly, you know that the apparatus for doing it has been put in them from the very moment they were born. So you're not defying the odds. You're just channeling what God has already put within the person. So what I'm asking you is, do you believe that that thing, that seed, that nature at the bottom of a person's heart can literally be flipped so it's different? Not mean nicer. Mean different. Do you believe anyone can change? Or is there some point beyond which we cannot change? Is there some sin that when you do it, you say to them, he's in too far, he's waited too long, he shouldn't have ever done that, it's too late for him. That's what I'm asking. Can anyone change or is it possible to be so hardcore in so deep that you look at that person and you say, it is impossible for them to change? You say, well, Steve, there are always triggers. Yes, but I'm asking you, can God take the firing pin away? <laughs> so that even when the trigger's pulled, one is in the environment where they used to fall, but the firing pin's been removed. And so when a person sees it, nothing happens. They respond the way a healthy person would respond. Because they've been changed. Do you believe it's possible for you to change? I think one of the reasons our culture is ashamed of shame. has nothing to do, really, with shame. I think we avoid it. But I wonder if our real problem is despair. If shame is the feeling that there is something wrong with me, then despair is the feeling that there will always be something wrong with me. And so, if shame causes us to say, Lord, go away from me, I'm a sinful man, it's because closely tied to our shame is a feeling that it doesn't matter how long you stay in the boat, nothing's going to change. This is where... This is where we are this morning, isn't it? People look at us. I mean, we can dress up and put it on. But the truth is, we still carry things with us that we don't want to take to heaven. And if you've been in the church more than 20 years, no, 10 years, you've learned to just sort of annex these things into your life and say, well, this is just part of what it is to be a human. It's like you do the law of averages. You go look at all the other humans. 
but because we have not looked at the human, the one who defines humanity. If we cannot be changed purely, purely from the inside out, explain that. So we carry it with us. And, and what I'm asking you this morning is, do you believe that that can ever be changed? Uh, one of the books that I read last fall when I was getting some time was a book by Carol Dweck. Some of you may have read it in the social sciences field. The book's called Mindset. She's a Stanford psychologist, researcher, who's her whole life, she's, she's like an older person now. She's over 50. And she's spent her whole life studying the connection between one's self-concept and their performance. And what she says is, most of us uh, fall into one of two categories. One of them, she says, is a fixed mindset. It's people who believe that things like intelligence are assigned to you at birth. And while you can maybe fix it a little bit, you can only go so high. And the other kind of people are people that have an open mindset or a growth mindset. And for them, they see everything as an opportunity to learn and get better. She said it all happened one day when she was sitting with a group of elementary school children, giving them puzzles to solve, and then as they solved the puzzle, she would give them a harder one, and then a harder one. And so she was increasing the likelihood that they would sooner or later fail on one of the puzzles that she gave them. And when the puzzles got harder, she noticed the people fell into two categories. There were students who just disengaged and pushed back and folded their arms, and they just quit trying. And there were other students who leaned forward and started moving their hands. And one of them smacked his lips after he failed once or twice on the same puzzle. And he said, I was hoping I'd learn something. And she said, I withdrew from this. And I thought to myself, what does he know that I didn't know? Because for me, intellect was assigned. You were either smarter or you weren't. And if you failed, it just meant that you weren't. And so if you could arrange your life in such a way that you never failed and you were never embarrassed, you could stay smart. But what if there's a different mind that says failure is simply another way to get into success? You say, what's this got to do with religion? I grew up in a church with people who were very religious, but they had a fixed mindset. And so their answer to the question, can people change, was, yes, I did, I'm done. Because what happened is, once you got accepted by the guild of religious people, with a fixed mindset, every time you failed, it just proved that you weren't holy. See, so if you ever sinned, it was like saying you were dumb. And it was the mindset. 
It, for them, holiness was a diploma. It's something you got after you passed all of the criteria and you finally proved competency in holiness. But there were other people that I grew up with for whom holiness was a license to practice, <laughs> like a doctor who says, just because I have a certain criteria, it doesn't mean I know everything. It doesn't even mean I know what's wrong with you. Man, I could kill you. But if I did, I would be learning in the process. Thinking, <laughs> what? <laughs> it's why they call it practicing medicine. It's because every encounter is fresh. And the physician goes in and says, I have a couple pockets full of things that I know for sure, but I don't know what holiness looks like in this situation. I could get this all wrong. And they're not afraid of the guild. It's uh, interesting that Peter's last encounter with Jesus would be like his first one. He'd be out in a boat one morning when, after the resurrection. And they would be fishing all night, just like they were before. And they would hear a voice of someone on the beach. hundred yards away is what John 21 said. That's a football field from here. And the voice just says, literally in the original language, it's a rhetorical question. What he says is, Fellas, you haven't caught anything, have you? I hate when he does that. And they just say, no. And he says, well, put your nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter, the fisherman, Jesus, not, must think to himself, you're a hundred yards away. How do you know where the fish are? But because you say, I'll put him on the other side of the boat. So he does. And the moment he lets him down, he feels that familiar drag on the net. And when he starts pulling the net up, it's busting full of fish. The cords are starting to break. It's like deja vu all over again. Yogi Bear put it, right? The moment that happens, John is in the boat and John says, it's the Lord. Now watch what happens next. Peter does not say, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. God, now you have an open mind. And he jumps overboard and he starts swimming like mad to the only person who can save him from his failure. That's what some of you have got to do. You've been avoiding this too long, and I'll tell you why. Because you're scared of somebody else in the room. Forget them. I don't care if you work for them. I don't care if you play for them. I don't care if you live next to them. Forget them. They are not your problem. You are your problem. You have inadequacies, 
You have shame. You have hurt. You feel inferior. And these are not just psychological categories. These are existential categories. And for so long, people have said to you, you do not need to feel that way. You are precious. You are special. There is nothing wrong with you. But you know in your heart, don't you, that you cannot shout over the silence of God. You've been hearing parents, teachers, coaches your entire life afraid to hurt your feelings and demotivate you, tell you how precious you are. But people, they don't understand. What makes you separate is not that you have no shame. It's that you have a future in spite of the shame. The way out of it is not to say, oh, I'm not these things. It's to say, God has declared that I will be something else. And so what some of you need to do is you need to hear the voice of God. There is no teacher. There is no professor. There is no colleague. There's no dean. There's no pastor, no coach or parent who can say things that only God can say. And you have to assign to God the authority to define you. Because you came to church today hearing all of these voices and all of the assessments and the reviews and you've pushed back and said, I feel awful. You need again to hear the voice of one who speaks in promises. Catherine Gonzalez says, the history of Christianity is not a history of men and women who believed a core set of dogmas. It's a history of men and women who heard a set of promises, and then they adjusted their life to match those promises, believing that even though they could not see it today, God would be faithful to deliver what he said he would deliver, and they hung on to that, and it was in that believing God changed their nature. They're different people today. Some of you are skeptical. You say, I don't know any. Get out more. And don't judge everyone you see by your own jaded view. So I want to give you these promises. If you've come to help us serve communion, would you come to the tables, please? Church, would you please close your eyes? And if you can, focus on the word of the Lord. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation 
a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. For you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So being justified through faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you have gained access into the grace in which you now stand. In fact, you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When you were baptized, you were buried with Him through your baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you too may live a new life. Since you were united with Him in His death, you will certainly be united with Him in His resurrection. So there is now no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus, because through Him... The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the spirit of God. If the spirit lives in you, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through that spirit who is alive in you. My friend, now you are the children of God. And what you will be has not yet been made known, but we know this, that when He appears, you will be like Him, for you will see Him as He is here.